As commented on by Dr. Rini, in the last few years, there's been an explosion of clinical research on targeted molecular therapy of renal cell cancer. I met with Dr. Robert Figlin to further explore this fascinating development, and he began our conversation by putting this interesting tumor in perspective. Renal cell carcinoma is a disease that worldwide affects about 170,000 people per year. In the United States, it affects about 35 to 38,000 people per year. It's a disease whose frequency and incidence is increasing, especially in African-American populations, and is expected to continue to increase over the next several decades, in large part as a result of an aging population, as well as the disease appearing in the late 5th, 6th, and 7th decades of life. The majority of renal cell carcinoma has a 2 to 1 male predilection, and the reason that people develop renal cell carcinoma historically has been through exposures, the most common exposure being cigarette smoking, and kidney cancer is considered to be a tobacco-related malignancy, as are other tumors of the era digestive and genitourinary tract. Certainly exposure to toxins that we take in that are filtered by the kidney also expose us to that. There's also the belief that obesity, for some reason, is associated with an increasing incidence of kidney cancer, but those relationships are really much softer than the relationship with smoking. Kidney cancer is a heterogeneous disease. 20 years ago and 25 years ago when I started practicing and looking at kidney cancer, kidney cancer was often thought to be a mass arising in the kidney, producing the classic triad of flank pain, hematuria, and a renal mass. And we now understand that those findings with the advent of CT and MRI scanning, we're really seeing patients much earlier in their course and fewer patients actually present with that classic triad. Additionally, we now know that the heterogeneous nature of kidney cancer allows us to understand that there are several major subtypes. There's the clear cell variety, which occurs in up to 80% of patients. There's the papillary renal cell carcinoma, which comes in two forms, type 1 and type 2, which occurs in about 10 to 15% of patients. And then there's a variety of smaller subtypes like chromophobe renal cell carcinoma, which is infrequent for the medical oncologist practicing. The basic biology of kidney cancer has really been extraordinary over the last 10 years, in large part because kidney cancer offers us a window into the genetic abnormality associated with its development. There is a syndrome called von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, This is a syndrome that is familial, it's passed down through parents, and it produces 100% of the time tumors, some of which are clear cell carcinoma of the kidney. This syndrome is associated with a very clear genetic abnormality, which is the loss of the short arm of the three chromosome, so-called 3P deletion. That sounds like a very complicated issue, but it turns out that we now know that the results of a 3P deletion or a VHL mutation results in a cascade of events, the result of which is, in part, uncontrolled angiogenesis. And in fact, it's that uncontrolled angiogenesis 
which has led to many of the molecules that are currently in the clinic and will be in the clinic very quickly for physicians across the world to use because it's been understanding that biology that has enabled us to link therapeutic interventions. And when you say uncontrolled angiogenesis, do we know specifically what the defect is? Yes. So what happens is that the VHL mutation upregulates something called HIF, H-I-F, which stands for hypoxia-inducible factor. Hypoxia-inducible factor then results in the upregulation of target genes. Those target genes include glucose genes, angiogenesis genes, pH and metabolism genes, genes that control cancer cell growth. And they do that through a series of mechanisms. When most of us were in medical school, we learned that the bloodiest tumor both for the urologist and the medical oncologist, is often considered to be kidney cancer. And the reason for that is because of uncontrolled angiogenesis. And it's that uncontrolled angiogenesis that produces the blood vessels both inside the tumor and inside the tumor stroma that really drives the growth of the cancer, producing local regional spread as well as distant spread. What that's allowed us to do now is to say, well, if angiogenesis is one of the pathways that controls kidney cancer, maybe there are other pathways as well. And what many of us have done, myself when I was at UCLA, Bob Motzer at Sloan Kettering in New York, Ron Bukowski at the Cleveland Clinic, Bernard Escudier in Paris, has allowed us to really develop paradigms for the identification of risk associated with clinical presentation. And what most of us oncologists are used to is the classic TNM staging system, which stands for T for the size of the tumor, N for whether or not lymph nodes are present, and M for metastases. But the TNM staging system in kidney cancer, which divides tumors by stage 1, 2, 3, and 4, although helpful, has been advanced by the addition of some simple clinical parameters. So in the previously untreated patient that presents to the urologist or the medical oncologist, the standard system that is currently used is something called the UCLA Integrated Staging System, or UISS, which uses both TNM, performance status, and nuclear grade characterized by Furman. The memorial system is a system for metastatic patients, and it uses five simple measures, LDH, hemoglobin, calcium, whether or not the patient had a nephrectomy, and performance status. And what this allows the oncologist and the urologist to do is when they see the patient at presentation with their local disease or metastatic disease, characterize the risk and then use that risk category to identify the appropriate treatment algorithms that should be used. We have then further extended that to look at the molecular structure, and that's because if we can use TNM, performance status, and grade, one can imagine that where most of us want to go in oncology is to really look at the protein expression, molecular expression, genetic expression of the tumor, because we believe that that's what defines a cancer, not how big it is, not whether the lymph nodes are involved, or not whether the person has a performance status ECOG 0 or 1. 
And it's using those molecular signatures that in kidney cancer will define how we treat patients, but probably not for the next five to 10 years, in contrast to where we're already using those molecular signatures in diseases like breast cancer, where you treat differently if they happen to have a BRCA1 abnormality or a genetic abnormality like HER2. Who is sort of the most far advanced right now in trying to define this? I think the most advanced prognostic system that currently exists has been the work that we've carried out at UCLA, and that is the the prediction using a molecular staging system for both the locally advanced, the localized, and the metastatic patients, and predicting how people will survive. And in fact, that molecular staging system can be used in prospective clinical trials to define populations at greatest risk as opposed to just clinical parameters. Now, a couple other things that I think the oncologist needs to be aware of. The mainstay of treatment for localized kidney cancer is still surgical resection. But having said that, over the last 20 years, we have gone from a standard of a radical nephrectomy with removal of the adrenal gland, the kidney, and the regional lymph nodes to what we currently do in 2007, which is nephron-sparing surgery, laparoscopic nephrectomies, partial or complete, and most recently, robotic surgery, where the surgeon is actually at a console next to the patient. All of these procedures associated with shorter stays in the hospital, preservation of renal function, but still local regional control of the cancer. Let's take the next step and talk about some of the agents that are available right now and sort of how they work, particularly the newer ones, and where they fit into this model. Right. So the paradigm with kidney cancer is evolving. In December of 2005, serafinib was approved for metastatic renal cancer. In January of 2006, sunitinib was approved in advanced renal cell cancer. And ASCO 2007 will have further discussions about drugs like bevacizumab in randomized controlled trials. And the prior plenary session at ASCO 2006 of Temsirolimus, another agent that is also soon to become available, hopefully in the first or second quarter of 2007. So let me see if I can paint the picture for why these agents have resulted in such spectacular benefit. Let's go back to our genetic abnormality. So kidney cancer, clear cell, most often has a genetic abnormality associated with the VHL gene that activates HIF, which then activates the VEGF and angiogenesis pathways. One could imagine that if you had agents that could inhibit HIF or agents that inhibit the angiogenesis pathway alone or in combination, we would have drugs that may be effective in kidney cancer. 2007 and even through 2008, we now have at least four drugs that have met that paradigm. What are those drugs? We have VEGF receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which inhibit the activation of the VEGF through the receptor and can be inhibited by either serafinib or sunitinib. We have bevacizumab, which is a VEGF ligand antibody, which can inhibit before activation of the receptor. And we have temsorolimus, 
which through its mechanisms of action inhibit HIF, which then in turn inhibits angiogenesis. So let me go through each of these specifically and help you understand where that fits into the treatment paradigm in 2007 for metastatic kidney cancer. Could you just clarify, though, sort of biochemically or molecularly, how HIF interacts with VEGF, or does it? The mechanism by which HIF and angiogenesis interact are that if you inhibit HIF, HIF thereby inhibits angiogenesis. So angiogenesis is a downstream effect of the effects of HIF. So HIF activation activates angiogenesis, angiogenesis activates the receptor, all in a sequence of steps. But does this involve VEGF? So HIF inhibition results in a downregulation of VEGF and other proangiogenic factors. And how is that accomplished? In what way does it inhibit it? So let's talk about these drugs individually, because I think it'll be easier for the listener to understand how that fits in. So let's first look at sunitinib. Sunitinib is a drug which is a small molecule, oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor, approved by the Food and Drug Administration in January of 2006, and a recent January 2007 New England Journal publication demonstrating that sunitinib, when given to patients with good and intermediate prognosis renal cell carcinoma, has a significant improvement in progression-free survival when compared to standard interferon therapy. This treatment, four weeks of oral treatment followed by two weeks of rest, is associated with a more than two-fold improvement in progression-free survival. This improvement occurs across all treatment groups, good prognosis, intermediate prognosis patients, so that when you see a patient with good and intermediate prognosis kidney cancer, sunitinib is often now considered the gold standard, standard of care for the upfront treatment of that patient population. The second drug is tempsorolimus. Tempsorolimus is an ester of rapamycin, which is given intravenously on a weekly basis at 25 milligrams. And when it inhibits HIF, randomized trials presented last year at the plenary session in ASCO and soon to be approved, hopefully, by the FDA, has resulted in, again, a significant improvement in progression-free as well as overall survival in patients with intermediate and poor prognosis renal cell carcinoma that has resulted in a dramatic opportunity for patients that heretofore basically were sent home on hospice. These patients tolerate the therapy well. The therapy is the first treatment that has been shown to produce a survival benefit in renal cell carcinoma, which is really no small feat, and has resulted in improvement when compared to either interferon alone or the combination of interferon and tempsorolimus. What about the side effects and tolerability profile? So most of the drugs that inhibit the angiogenesis pathway and inhibit the HIF pathway have a toxicity profile which is significantly different than the toxicity profile that we as oncologists are used to with cytotoxic chemotherapy. There's two points that I would like to make. First of all, 
the paradigm shift in kidney cancer has resulted by the recognition that absence of progression of disease as measured by CAT scan, MRI, or clinical evaluation is equally as important as objective response. So the practicing oncologist should not just weigh whether to continue or not continue these drugs based upon tumor shrinkage using classically defined methods like Resist or WHO. So it's absence of progression that has resulted in this significant improvement in progression-free survival and survival. Secondly, these drugs have a toxicity profile that produces things differently than cytotoxic chemotherapy. So, for example, sunitinib. Sunitinib can lower the blood counts in a reversible fashion. It can cause some fatigue, hand-foot syndrome, which is a novel toxicity associated with this drug and other angiogenesis inhibitors. And it can produce the lethargy, stomatitis, and the most important side effect that most oncologists have forgotten since their internal medicine training days is that it can produce either a new onset of hypertension or a worsening of existing hypertension. And the oncologist needs to follow the blood pressure of these patients and manage them appropriately. Tempsirolimus has a bit of a different profile. It really doesn't cause hand-foot syndrome. The immunosuppressive action of tempsirolimus is not of significant magnitude, and the major side effects are really anorexia and lethargy. Can you sort of put more of a qualitative appraisal of how much that affects the patients? Right. So the question that's often asked is, what's the quality of life for people with renal cell carcinoma treated with these agents? And what's been nice is the studies that have been carried out have clearly shown the quality of life has improved as a result of these treatments. But having said that, these treatments can result in some difficult times for people that require dose modifications, halting of the drug, and restarting at a different dose. Probably the single most important person in the management of kidney cancer using these novel agents is the physician's physician extenders the nurse practitioner, the physician assistant, or the nurse, because often these are the kinds of side effects that the nurses in our practices deal with day in and day out and have to be an integral part of their care. Can you talk a little bit about sunitinib and serafinib? Okay, so serafinib is an agent that is also a VEGF receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It is an agent that was approved in December of 2005, and was approved because of a very lovely trial published in the January New England Journal of Medicine by Bernard Escudier, demonstrating that serafinib, when compared to placebo in previously cytokine-treated patients, had a significant progression-free survival difference when compared to control. It's that trial that resulted in serafinib's approval. The other drug that is noteworthy to mention is bevacizumab. And the reason for that is bevacizumab was really the first drug in kidney cancer presented by Jim Yang in a New England Journal of Medicine article in 2003 that demonstrated an improvement in progression-free survival. And although the time to progression was better, it was unclear exactly how to develop the drug. There ensued a series of trials, the second of which we presented last year at ASCO, Ron Bukowski was the presenter, 
where we discussed bevacizumab and erlotinib versus bevacizumab and placebo, showing that about 13 to 14% of patients had objective responses, and another 60 to 65% of patients had stable disease, but the addition of erlotinib added no benefit with respect to progression-free survival, resulting in the statement that it appeared that bevacizumab alone had substantial activity in untreated patients with progression-free survivals that were in the eight to nine-month range. What about objective response rates to Bev alone? So the objective response rate to bevacizumab alone are about 13 to 14% in previously untreated patients, about 10% in previously treated patients. But again, the important thing for the oncologist to note is that it's the overall disease control rate of about 80% that is the significant piece of information, and to not focus just on the objective response rate. So there are two trials that are taking place, one in the United States, principal investigator is Brian Reaney with the cooperative groups, and the second in the European theater where Bernard Escudier was the principal investigator. Each of these trials was a comparison of bevacizumab and interferon, versus an interferon control with or without placebo. We are fortunate to know that a press release just recently has shown that the trial that compared bevacizumab and interferon as compared to interferon and placebo was a statistically positive trial with an improvement in progression-free survival with the bevacizumab-treated group compared to the control group. Although we have only seen the press release thus far, this is an important finding, and we expect to see these results presented in oral presentation at ASCO. What was the side effects and tolerability profile, the combination? Right. So we don't have much information yet on the side effect profile of bevacizumab and interferon in combination, because it's really never yet been reported except in phase one trials. It's important to note this. And that is that bevacizumab, when given alone, has a very good tolerability. The major side effects of bevacizumab alone, when given intravenously on an every two-week basis, are basically hypertension and having to watch out for proteinuria, which could lead to nephrotic syndrome, but doesn't really have the associated lethargy, anorexia, hand-foot syndrome, and some of the other immunosuppressive complications associated with the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We do need to look at carefully what happens when interferon is added, because obviously interferon does have toxicity when given on a three times a week schedule. But I think the more important thing for the oncologist is that we're probably going to now have, after 2007 ASCO, three drugs in randomized trials compared with interferon in untreated patients which have shown benefit, sunitinib, tempsirolimus, and bevacizumab in combination with interferon. This issue of, you know, the fact that tempsirolimus has been tested in the high-risk patients and sunitinib has shown this advantage in the lower-risk patients, does that make sense biologically, or would it make sense that both should theoretically work for the other risk group also? So trying to connect the discussion around benefit of good, intermediate, and poor-risk patients with the molecular predictors of prognosis allows us to understand why 
In kidney cancer, it may be important to keep the paradigm restricted to the patients that the treatment was given in an evidence-based fashion in the trials. Why is that? It's pretty clear that there is a suggestion both from clinical trials from Dr. Atkins, published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, as well as our own data, which is going to be published in cancer and has been accepted for publication, that poor-risk kidney cancer patients have a disease which is more often driven by a pathway called mTOR. And temsorolimus is an mTOR inhibitor that inhibits HIF and may be more appropriate for the intermediate and poor-risk patient, whereas sunitinib, the pathway driving good and intermediate prognosis patients, may very well be a more VEGF-driven pathway and more appropriately used for a targeted agent against that specific pathway. So the point for the practicing oncologist is to recognize that as we understand the biology of the cancer better, we can then start to tailor the multiple treatments to that biology as opposed to just bringing the drugs to all comers. And one of the challenges that I have as a translational clinical investigator and my colleagues is to help to define for the practicing oncologist when to use sinitinib, when to use tempsorolimus, when they shouldn't be used because the biology doesn't drive the pathway that they inhibit, And then, obviously, in the future, how do you bring these drugs to a broader group of patients? What do you do for the diseases that are papillary kidney cancer, which by and large have not been studied as well? And also, how does this then apply to the high-risk resected patient in the adjuvant setting, where we all want to try and treat people sooner, not just for the progression-free survival benefit, but for also the opportunity of an overall survival benefit? Now, in the bevacizumab trials, what kinds of patients were entered? The bevacizumab trials were good and intermediate prognosis, clear cell carcinoma patients, very similar to the sinitinib trials. Again, does that make sense biologically? Absolutely, because the VEGF ligand activates the VEGF receptor and is very intrinsic to that population of patients. Where are we in terms of tissue or serum predictors of response to any of these agents? So that's an excellent question. We're not far enough along as we should be. We have studied, other people continue to study, the correlation between the prediction of tissue immunohistochemistry, for example, and biologic response, the prediction of circulating tumor cells or circulating intermediate markers and biologic response. And I think for the practicing physician, it would be interesting to continue to follow this literature as it evolves, but it really does not yet apply in the era of angiogenesis inhibition. The one place where we're learning that it may apply is remember that there still is a drug called interleukin-2. This drug, although very difficult to administer, is associated with durable remissions in a small subset of patients. And there's a large trial going on throughout the country that I and my colleagues are involved in called the SELECT trial, which is trying to identify those molecular markers both on tissue and in the serum to predict for who might benefit from a treatment like interleukin-2 that has potential morbidity but has the ability for enormous success. What's your current algorithm in terms of first, second, and third line therapy for metastatic disease? And do you think it's going to change after ASCO? 
I think that we're all in evolution. It's amazing to me in kidney cancer that we've had probably more drugs approved in this single disease over this short period of time than many other diseases that we've treated in cancer. And the algorithm is also in flux. So I think that in 2007, if we can confirm that the bevacizumab interferon randomized trial shows significant benefit, we will have three drugs in the untreated patient to choose from. We will have sunitinib, temsorolimus, and avastin or bevacizumab with interferon. My own personal preference, based upon the evidence that I'm aware of, would be in the untreated good and intermediate prognosis. It would be either sunitinib or bevacizumab in combination with interferon. In the intermediate and poor prognosis patient, it would be temsorolimus. And for the selected patient with good end organ function, who's otherwise healthy, looking for a durable remission, high-dose interleukin-2. And what about second-line therapy? Second-line therapy, I would reserve for a different pathway. So if a person received sunitinib and progressed, I would consider an agent like temsorolimus. If a person progressed on temsorolimus, I would consider agents that inhibit the VEGF pathway, like bevacizumab, serafinib, or sunitinib. And it's my belief that what the oncology community is going to have to demonstrate is that what should be the second-line therapy after frontline failure is going to have to be determined in the context of prospective clinical trials. What the practicing oncologist has to do right now is understand that we're not yet there, We won't see real clear direction at ASCO 2007, but those trials are currently recruiting patients and assessing what should be the second-line therapy. What do we know about responses to second-line, and particularly what do we know about if you go from sunitinib to serafinib or vice versa? Right. So what we know is that when you go to second-line therapy, there are anecdotal evidence from clinical trials as well as personal experience that these drugs are not entirely cross-resistant. So you can see serafinib responses in prior sunitinib failures and sunitinib responses in prior serafinib failures. There is also a trial with a drug called RAD001 from Novartis, which is a second-line trial of an mTOR inhibitor compared to placebo in TKI failures. The problem for the practicing oncologist is we're having difficulty defining what a TKI failure is, or an angiogenesis failure, because many of these patients respond to the drug and then slowly progress. Some of these patients never respond to the drug, and we don't yet understand what the resistance mechanisms are to overcoming angiogenesis inhibition. Can you talk about sort of what you say to patients in terms of what to expect at a practical level in terms of side effects and toxicity when you're going to start them on sunitinib, serafinib, and temsorolimus? I think people probably pretty well can figure out bevacizumab and interferon, but what about those three? Right. So the conversation that I have with a patient and the patient's family goes something like this. We now have opportunities to improve the quality of life as well as the duration of your life and symptom-free life by the addition of agents that are now available in the clinic, either in the oral or intravenous method of administration. What's key is that you and I have to have a partnership because these drugs, when given, 
are not side effect free and we have to modulate the dose and the schedule sooner rather than later to allow you to get the full benefit of the drug without having the untoward toxicity. So even though I may not want to see you for two weeks or three weeks or some period of time, I would expect you to call me and monitor with me your toxicity so that if you're developing the hand-foot syndrome from a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, I can modify the dose appropriately. If you're developing and testing your own blood pressure and you're seeing that your blood pressure is going up because of these angiogenesis inhibitors, that we can monitor and either start you on an antihypertensive or change the antihypertensives that you're currently on. And it's the real integration of my practice with the patient and the family that allows for the early interventions as well as the appropriate dose modifications that allow for the positive outcomes. What do you generally see as sort of the most common problem that patients have that maybe even make you question whether you want to continue therapy in terms of, again, sunitinib and serafinib? The biggest dose-limiting toxicity for the oral tyrosine kinases, serafinib and sunitinib, is the development of hand-foot syndrome. And even though in the reported literature it occurs in about 20 to 30 percent of patients, even grade one and grade two can be troublesome for a patient. It can affect their ability to walk normally. It can affect their ability to carry out normal activities. And we must be aware of this early in the course. The biology of the hand-foot syndrome is not really understood. It's not clear whether it's an inhibition of angiogenesis or what's called an off-target effect of the drugs that are multi-targeted agents. But what I do know one thing, and that is that if you early intervene in a person developing hand-foot syndrome, it's rapidly reversible, and with restarting of the drug at a dose-modified dose, it can be given for a continued period of time. What's the relative impact in terms of the hand-foot for serafinib versus sunitinib? I think the literature would argue that the commonality of hand-foot syndrome for serafinib and sunitinib, since they're both tyrosine kinases, are pretty similar. The anecdotal evidence that we have in my practice where we see large numbers of patients is that oftentimes the literature has underreported the side effect, and it's really critical for the physician and their nurse extenders to be aware of this side effect. And as we know as oncologists, oftentimes the best thing to do for a patient about to receive a drug with potential toxicity is alert them to the toxicity before they develop it so early intervention is possible, as opposed to them being surprised when they develop something that they didn't expect. Do you uh, utilize anything preventively or therapeutically, any creams and stuff? Yeah, it's an interesting question about the management of hand-foot. We don't have a good handle in that, but we do have some anecdotes. First of all, if they develop it, what you have to do is you have to stop the dose, allow it to recover, and restart in a dose-modified way. Do not, under any circumstances, continue the treatment expecting that there will be a tachyphylaxis and the side effect will go away. Again, is that for any level of hand foot or a certain level? That's for grade 3 and grade 4. Now, using emollients or things that are lotions are helpful. Steroids are not helpful. But there was an interesting report just recently in a letter to the editor in the Journal of Clinical Oncology that suggested that the topical application of antiperspirants on the hands and feet may affect the hand-foot syndrome. 
Why? Because it may be that the concentration of the drug is selectively increased in glands in the hands and feet, that if you block it through some mechanism may ameliorate the hand-foot syndrome. I have to tell you that anecdotally, we have seen some positive evidence of this in my practice at City of Hope, and I'm looking forward to hearing more information about that at our national meetings, including anecdotal experiences. So how often do they spray it on, and when do you tell them to do it? So I don't think anybody really knows the answer of when you should apply it. What I tell my patients to do is to start immediately. Because I know that if they're going to develop it, what I'd like to do is give them an opportunity to be on as full dose as humanly possible. And if you roll on, ban roll on or some antiperspirant, and you put that on your hands and feet a couple times a day, it would be interesting to see over time in prospective trials whether that's helpful. I will tell you one anecdote just because it's interesting, and my nurse has done this, and that is I've used patients as their own internal controls. What I've done is I've asked them to put it on one hand and one foot and not on the other hand and the other foot to see whether this is really a positive effect. And believe it or not, we now have anecdotal experience where the hand and foot where the antiperspirants were applied had less hand foot syndrome than the hand and foot that didn't have the antiperspirant applied. That's wild. How many patients have you seen that on? Just three patients because we've just started this recently. I've got one you probably haven't heard, which is head and shoulders for the rash of erlotinib. Have you heard that one? Yes. And I think the whole area of, well, let me give you a little bit of oncology history. And that is that it's often taken years after a drug is approved for the oncologist in the community to really get a handle on toxicity management. And it often comes through anecdotes exactly like this. The practicing oncologist isn't going to wait for randomized trials for toxicity management, they're actually going to try things and anecdotally figure it out. So whether it's head and shoulders for the erlotinib, jafitinib rash, or it's antiperspirant for the hand-foot syndrome, it's a big use of the practicing oncologist's ability to inform the clinical oncologist researcher about the questions that we should ask. And in fact, I believe that's how we'll affect these. Just to clarify, though, you've observed or heard this thing about head and shoulders? We have certainly heard about head and shoulders, although I will tell you that for the erlotinib and jafitinib rashes, the more standard approach would be the early intervention of antibiotics with things like minocycline, the discontinuation of the drug if it's severe, and the application of topical emollients when appropriate. How does the clinical syndrome of this hand-foot syndrome compare to what you see with capecitabine? Right, and that is a wonderful question because it should be understood, at least in my perspective, that the hand-foot syndrome from fluoropyrimidines is a different syndrome than the hand-foot syndrome from angiogenesis inhibitors and tyrosine kinase inhibitors. The duration is different, the severity is different, the rapidity of onset is different, and they really, even though they have the same name, hand-foot syndrome, are really two different processes. How about the symptoms and signs? Is it distribution, et cetera? Well, with the oral TKIs and kidney cancer, it really stands out in the hands and feet, really doesn't extend anywhere else. Now, there are some other anecdotes, which I think we're going to have to figure out. There is some suggestion that different ethnicities will handle drugs differently. We have seen, for example, that in some of the patients that we see of Asian descent, that they really handle drugs differently than patients that are not of Asian descent. 
And rather than give you a anecdote, I think it's just important to recognize that different ethnicities may have different mechanisms of metabolism of these drugs and may require different interventions because their PK and PD and the area under the curve concentrations may be quite different. Let's talk a little bit about where we might be heading in the future. And one of the things that we're seeing in other tumors, colon cancer, breast cancer, even lung cancer, is the combination of biologics. What about combining these various biologics you've been discussing today? Right. So 2006 ASCO, 2007 ASCO, and beyond, the big question will be, how do we combine multiple targeted agents in renal cell cancer? What's often been talked about is what's called horizontal or vertical inhibition. Vertical inhibition would be using agents like a VEGF receptor inhibitor like serafinib and sunitinib in combination with avastin or bevacizumab, which is in the same vertical pathway. Horizontal inhibitors would be when we combine a tyrosine kinase inhibitor to the receptor with something that is like an mTOR inhibitor, which is a different pathway. Let me alert the oncologist to a few things. Please try not to use these combinations of drugs in your office until we know that they're safe as a result of phase one and phase two trials. The reason is we're already seeing that the unexpected additive toxicities of using vertical and horizontal inhibition have caused us to dose-reduce drugs and ask the question of how safely can we combine these. So I believe that combination therapy is in the future. I don't know yet what the doses and schedules should be, nor do I yet know whether or not a combination will be better, and I alert the oncologist to this, similar to kind of the prostate cancer experience, and that is, will a combination be better than the sequential administration of the same drugs? So, for example, if we were giving sunitinib followed by tempsorolimus, is that just as good as giving sunitinib with tempsorolimus? And I think until we answer these questions in trials, I would ask the oncologist to be wary of taking that into clinical practice. The other thing that I will tell you is that one of the take-home lessons from this entire lesson, what I haven't shared with you, is that there are few, if any, complete responses to these drugs, which means that these drugs are palliative in nature, important contributions to the armamentarium of treatment for kidney cancer, but are not curing people. Thus, if some of us still believe that kidney cancer can be a curable disease, we have to study other pathways, other molecular markers, combinations of treatment, because we really want to see durable remissions and potentially unmaintained remissions where we don't have to continue the drug for extended periods of time. What about trials in the adjuvant setting? What's being looked at right now? Where are things heading? And is there a role for any of these agents in a non-protocol setting in terms of adjuvant therapy? So the adjuvant therapy of kidney cancer is an area that's under intense clinical research scrutiny. In large part, we have been able to identify through programs like the UCLA Integrated Staging System, the high-risk resected patient, so that we could restrict the treatments that we have to offer to the high-risk resected patient who has probably a 50-50 or better chance of relapsing. The current trial that is an intergroup trial in the United States is what's called the ASSURE trial, 
and the Assure trial is a randomized prospective clinical trial currently accepting patients through all your cooperative group affiliates that compares placebo to sunitinib to serafinib. All other drugs in our armamentarium, radiation, IL-2, interferon, have not been shown to be effective in the adjuvant setting. And I can't tell you how many calls I get from urologists and oncologists saying, would I use any of these new drugs in the adjuvant setting off protocol? And my answer is no, I would not. I would really restrict the adjuvant therapy of patients to a prospective clinical trial because one, we don't yet have evidence that adjuvant therapy with angiogenesis inhibition of any form really benefits patients in that setting. Two, these drugs are not devoid of toxicity, so quality of life in a person that is otherwise potentially cured has to be part of the equation. And lastly, until we know that it's safe in the adjuvant setting and has a positive effect, I would restrict it to clinical trial participation. What about the management of patients with papillary cancer for practical purposes? How do you manage it? What's being done in terms of trials? So papillary kidney cancer is a genetic disease that is completely different than clear cell carcinoma. But one of the similar things that it has is that in papillary kidney cancer, its angiogenesis is controlled by hypoxia. So one could imagine that for all the things that we're talking about, papillary kidney cancer would have the ability to be treated with some of the agents that we're talking about. Let me broaden that. In the Tempsirolimus clinical trial, they did not restrict patients to just clear cell carcinoma. So in the intermediate and poor prognosis, Toracel or Tempsirolimus trial, papillary kidney cancer was part of that treatment paradigm. We are now seeing the evolution of the uses of serafinib, sunitinib, and bevacizumab in papillary kidney cancer patients. And for the practicing oncologist, my own view would be one, if you have available to you a clinical trial for papillary kidney cancer, enter that patient on a clinical trial. If not, use the other commercially available agents in that disease because it still offers patients an opportunity.